Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, we're talking about Jane Austen, sexy heroes, the repression of desire, and the history of sex toys. Think those things are totally unrelated? Just you wait. We've talked about sex before on Smarty Pants, when Jeffrey R. Stone joined us to talk about what happened when sex met the law. This episode, we are joined by Hallie Lieberman, who got her PhD in the history of sex toys which turns out to be pretty closely tied to our weird, complicated American relationship with sexuality. Viagra ads on network TV that mention erections? Check. The word vibrator in a print advertisement in the back of a magazine? Run for the hills. And it turns out, even though they're legal in all but one state now, up until the mid-2000s, selling sex toys was illegal in at least five including Texas, where Hallie Lieberman was paying for grad school by hosting borderline legal home sales parties. Kind of like Tupperware, but for sex toys. A lot of the people I was selling them to were super religious people. Crosses on the walls, they were um, conservative, they were Republican, very family values people. And I was expecting everyone to be like bleeding heart liberals. And so this spurred me to write the book because I was like, why in the 21st century, A, are we making sex toys illegal? So why are we so weird about this? And B, why are we selling sex toys to promote kind of traditional cultural values, traditional gender roles? This episode will give you a lot of good material to liven up conversation at the Thanksgiving table, let me tell you. But before we get to the sexy parts, we've got to talk about the writer behind one of the sexiest heroes in history. Jane Austen, who wrote Mr. Darcy into existence and birthed centuries of Janeite fervor. But the way we talk about Jane Austen and her heroes has changed a lot since Pride and Prejudice was first published in 1813. And her audience has changed too. Or at least who her audience is perceived to be. William Duresowitz is here to argue that our favorite Edwardian has a lot to offer men too as he writes in an essay for our autumn issue, A Jane Austen Kind of Guy. He joined us from Portland, Oregon, to talk about what it's like being a man in a woman's world, how Mr. Darcy became such a sexpot, and why it is that Jane Austen, in particular, has been perceived as a writer speaking to the female experience. Thanks for chatting with me, Bill. Thanks for having me on. 
So as my first question, I've got to ask, uh, what's up with you and Jane Austen? <laughs> You're quoting that dean who asked me that question <laughs> a long time ago. And I said, uh, I don't know. I just sometimes I feel like everything I know about life I learned by reading Jane Austen. Um, yeah, you know, there was a certain period in my life. Uh, I was in graduate school. It started when I was around 26 and ended, I guess, in my early 30s, if it ended at all, where uh, Jane Austen just became the most important author for me. And it was it was really unexpected. I I had the, the kind of conception of her that I think a lot of people have, which especially maybe a lot of guys, but not only guys, which is, you know, she's kind of this kind of romantic, chick-lit, kind of maybe not entirely serious, sort of trivial author. Why would I ever want to read her? And I also didn't read a lot of female authors. I didn't exactly have a prejudice against it. It just, I was just never attracted to them. So, you know, I didn't think they'd really speak to me. So I, I, uh, I had to read Emma for a class I took in graduate school, mainly because of the rest of the syllabus. And, you know... It was a it was a revelation. And then eventually, years later, I wrote a book about it. Wow. I feel like 26 is kind of late to come to Jane Austen, but but maybe not for men. <laughs> um, it's also funny that that Emma was your first experience. I feel like by and large, number one is Pride and Prejudice. Right, because I didn't choose to read. I mean, so about the lateness thing, I, I agree with that. I mean, you know, having written that book and and therefore kind of been introduced into the world of contemporary Jane Austen readers, I definitely found that uh, the typical, let's say the typical Jane Austen reader, if I can say that, is a woman and a woman who probably was introduced to her uh, maybe by her mother or by her friend or by some, maybe another female elder and probably when she was a teenager. Um so I was definitely late from that perspective. But I like I said, I didn't re- I didn't want to read her. If somebody said, you know, you must read Jane Austen, I probably would have started with Pride and Prejudice, or I would have asked them what to start with, and they would have said Pride and Prejudice. But I just I was just told to read Emma. So that's what I read. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you know. Yeah. It's a good reason to read a book. I think Emma is kind of a, a tough one to start with too, because I mean I've read all of her books. And that's along with Northanger Abbey and maybe Mansfield Park termed insufferable or like right. boring for most of it. But right. what about Emma got you so bad? Right. And by the way, I, I, it was it was of Emma, the character that Jane Austen wrote in a letter. I, I'm now going to create a heroine that nobody but myself will just like. Um, so here's how I understand that uh, in retrospect, right? She had already published a couple of novels and some of the criticism – that we know she read because she transcribed excerpts of it, um, <laughs> said that, you know, these books don't seem to be about anything. <laughs> it was Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. Like there was one early review that said, I literally can't tell you what happens in this book because nothing happens. And so I think with Emma, among other things, she said, okay, you think that my novels are about nothing. I'm really going to give you a novel that's completely about nothing. Like even relative to her other novels, uh, the heroine never goes anywhere. The plot never goes anywhere other than the village where she lives. Nothing dramatic happens even off stage, as it does in Pride and Prejudice. You know, you hear about, at least hear about dramatic things happening. And I wasn't any different when I started to read. I'm like, what is this? This is the most ridiculous, boring thing in the world. Um, but the revelation for me reading Emma was Emma's revelation, right? Because Emma also thinks that her world is boring. 
So that's like the one thing I could sign on with. <laughs> like she's insufferable, but she's also, you know, she sort of hates these boring people as much as I did. And then the big turning point in the novel, the big recognition, it's like a recognition out of Greek tragedy, except on a very Jane Austen kind of scale, is that, you know, she's she hurts somebody really horribly. She hurts Miss Bates really horribly, precisely by revealing her contempt for her. And this kind of causes her personality to crumble and the scales to be lifted from her eyes. And in the same way, that's what happened to me. Like, I realized that I was a complete jerk in the way I think I hate to be, you know, stereotypical about this. But I mean, I think in the way that a lot of young men are jerks, which is that they think they're superior to everybody. And um, like other people are not really present to them in a real way. They have no empathy, you know. It's a kind of, I think, narcissism that's natural to people, but maybe men are slower to grow out of. Um, and it just kind of shattered that for me. And it's so funny that that mirrors your approach to Austin, too. Like, not only did you realize that you personally were a jerk, but you realized, I guess, you've been a jerk about Austin. Did that open the floodgates? Did you immediately read all the Austin you could get your hands on or, like, head for the Brontes and the Elliots? <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, you're totally right. That's exactly, exactly. It also made me realize how stupid I'd been about Austin and how, like, the boredom was not just because she was boring. The only reason I didn't immediately re read her is because I was in graduate school and I had, like, so much reading <laughs> um, to begin with that I could barely keep up with it. But... Um, as soon as I had the chance, I read the rest of her novels. I didn't, you know, I, I've never warmed up to Charlotte Bronte. I think Emily, I think Wuthering Heights is a different kind of novel. Um, I don't, I've never really liked Charlotte Bronte. And actually, one of the things I discovered in graduate school once I joined the Jane Austen team is that those two teams are often at odds with each other. Like, Austen people hate Bronte. Bronte people hate Austen. Charlotte Bronte hated Austen, right? Right. Hated her. Um, you know, there's no life here, she said. And then Austin people think that Charlotte Bronte is just melodramatic and ridiculous. But I did love George Eliot. I did. I mean, George Eliot became one of my other big authors back then. I mean, it is it is weird because, I mean, you alluded to this at the beginning about how, like, as a young literary man, you were not really attracted to these women writers thinking that, you know, they're not going to have anything to say to you when, in fact, they have radically different things to say and not one of them even has much to say to women alone or like men alone. I agree with that, but let me let me say something that I don't think I said in the book or in the article in the in the New Scholar. Um, we live at a time when people are taught to read within their identity group, and they're taught to see um, authors who come from a given identity group as kind of uh, having a family connection. So. Um, for me to think of all women authors together, to kind of lump them together, I mean, I think that was kind of my own trip or just sort of a general kind of shallow sexism. But it's not like I'm the only one who does that. And um, it really, really bothers me that people don't read across gender lines enough in both directions now. I mean, I've... I can't say that I've ever heard a woman say this to me, but I've heard a number of people tell me that women have said this to them. Uh, and I've, re I've read people write, write this. Uh, I don't read male authors. It's like, well, wh why do you read if you don't... If your conception of reading would lead you to not read male authors, like, why are you reading in the first place? What is this about for you? I got to push back on you a, a little bit there. For the vast majority of human 
history or literary history, at least like male authors have never been lumped together. It's not like people say like Conrad is speaking for the male experience. Like that's ridiculous. Um, but the same thing was always said about women. And I think now maybe people will do things like only read women of color for a year as a response to that. It's not like that exists in a void. Well, that may be true. Um, I mean, that is true, but I don't think it's a smart response. And it's certainly also true that now people do talk about white white male authors as a group, even though it's, well, it's a very large group. Of course, women authors is a very large group, too. I mean, people talk about white male authors all the time. And uh, listen, I, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's really unfortunate that... Um, that our our relationship to art has been, uh, I think, so extensively captured by um, identity politics and identity categories, and um, you know, I mean, it, not in not in a not in a conscious way, but that's that's what my book was writing against was this balkanization. Mm. Women are for women, men are for men, black authors are for black people. That's not what literature is, and it's not what, you know, I mean, Virginia Woolf said the soul has no gender. I think any really good author in any of those categories will say, and, and has often been on the record as saying, I'm not, I'm not a Jewish American writer. I'm a, I'm a writer uh, who writes about my experience, which is a Jewish experience or an African American experience. But I don't think they're only looking for readers of their identity group, and I also don't think they, that they think that they're only writing about their identity group, even if that's their material to draw on. I mean, they're writing about people. I, I think if you only read within your identity group, you are constricting your humanity. That's the point. Just as my humanity was constricted because I didn't think it was worth my time to read women or to read Jane Austen. I don't think we disagree there. But you at least came to understand how important it was for you to read Jane Austen or for you know us to read outside of our identity groups. But it in the essay, you identify a couple ways in which Austin readers were surprised that you were there. So why do you think Austin in particular holds that place for readers? Right. Why not George Eliot? Right. It's not an accident that Jane Austen is kind of like the woman's author. Maybe, yeah, I mean, I think the woman's author in, in some ways. Um, her, her novels are not only about women, but they take place in really feminine... Uh, the Drawing Room... You know, domestic spaces in, in ways that even the, the Bronte novels, George Eliot's novels don't. Um, they take place in the interpersonal spaces between women, I think, in a really powerful way. Her relationships between sisters, between female friends, uh, sometimes between uh, young women and older women, although that can also be really fraught in her, in her novels. Um, and the other thing about her, and this is really quite remarkable, uh, there are very few authors, maybe no other authors of either gender around whom a world has been constructed in the way that Austin fandom, especially in recent decades, has constructed a world. Um, and that world is is a very feminine world and and or a very female world and and maybe in some ways a very feminine, stereotypically feminine world. And I talk about how, uh, female desire circulates in the novels and then circulates from outside the novels into the world of her readers. And it's a lot about, like, isn't Mr. Darcy sexy or isn't Colin Firth is Mr. Darcy sexy? Um, and that's completely fine. I mean, it's how the novels are constructed. But 
having a straight guy around kind of can be kind of a buzzkill. And or it's just like you are not like if I were gay, it would be fine. But it's like, why are you here? So I've got a question for you about that sublimated desire that um, that you know the the way that you say that a lot of readers of Austin are reading because they have this unbridled they have an unbridled desire that they can express even if the heroines can't. So like uh, mm. you know the Dashwoods, the Bennets, or the Elliots, they can't express you know how how hot Mister Darcy is. They just talk about like his estate, right. Or his library. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, like, when other characters do express desire, like the bad boys or the bad girls, like Henry Crawford or Marion Dashwood, whenever they express desire, especially of a sexual or romantic kind, then they always get their comeuppance, which I think is so interesting because we experience this schadenfreude at it. But that's exactly what we're experiencing, too. That's a good point. I've never I've never really explored that. Um, I don't know if that if it means that Jane Austen is in bad faith or she just. I mean, one of I mean, one of the sort of the big themes of of Austen is kind of regulated desire, right, and regulated mm-hmm. emotion. She's not against she's not against those things, but she's very much about order and civilization. You know, depending on keeping things in check. I, I would say that's how I would split that difference. Um, I don't think she's anti-desire. And just just to be explicit about it, I think that that's why uh, that that's the way sort of female desire circulates is that because the heroines can't express it in the way that they do in a Bronte novel or in actually quite a lot of Jane Austen, the novels that were written when Jane Austen was writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there are a lot of bodice rippers and a lot of, you know, a lot of gothic stuff. And she but she she doesn't. By not doing that, I think she leaves room for the implied female reader to have her own private desires in a way that's actually, I think, more intense and more unmediated and more uninterrupted than someone like Charlotte Bronte might do. Right. I think the private part is important. Like the reader can have that desire, that unbridled desire, but like reading, you're not going to necessarily be reading in like a park and like going to palpitations publicly. <laughs> right. Right. You're going to right. You're going to right. In her day you'd be reading maybe in your bedroom. It, what is interesting though is that now on the other side of of a of a liberation movement, uh women can get together and and build a community out of that desire. So, we've made it this far without talking too much about Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy. But what do you think is the danger of making all the films and and now many of the readings about the novels right. about Mr. Darcy or the hero as a sex symbol? Um, I, sh- I should say that I think among the movies, that one is one of the better ones, one of the best ones, probably, uh, just because it's faithful to the novel and it's long enough to, you know, get a, most of the novel in there. Um, I mean, I think fundamentally the novels are about growing up. And they're mm-hmm. and which means that they're about learning. It means they're about um, you know how to place yourself in relationship to other people, sort of like being a good person, to to put it you know simply. And and when you turn a novel into a hundred minute movie, um, and it has to conform to the conventions of you know the movie genre, you just turn it into a romance. And then, quite frankly, the actors tend to be much better looking than the characters are. I mean, her hero and heroine are usually not the best looking in their novels. 
because her conception of love doesn't center on erotic attraction, although it doesn't exclude it, but it doesn't center on it, because her novels are about so much more than that. You can read William Duresowitz's article in our autumn issue, which is also on our website at theamericanscholar.org. Link in the show notes, along with a list of some favorite Jane Austen adaptations and some more Janie essays. Now, speaking of containing desire, or rather not doing so, let's talk about sex toys, and specifically what they have to say about us as a country. Hallie Lieberman is the author of Buzz, a stimulating history of the sex toy, which is the product of years of research, and also some hands-on sales, as mentioned at the top of the show. She spent a number of years in grad school working for passion parties, where she would sell Texas housewives on all kinds of sex toys, but never called them that for legal reasons, even though their use was pretty clear. And the contradictions of living in a country that used sex to sell everything except for anything actually related to sex, and specifically in a state that banned the sale of rubber dildos, but not assault rifles, really got to her. Hallie joined us from New York to work out just why we're so hung up on sex toys. First off, thanks for joining us, Hallie. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to. So what I really like about this book is that you start from a premise of something that's called a toy, you know, a sex toy. It doesn't seem really... Essential, it seems kind of innocuous, but the history that you tell shows how it really intersects with these essential social movements in the U.S., like not just feminism, but also the disability rights movement. Well, yeah, I think that sex toys absorb meaning um, and they can mean so many different things to so many different people. So they can be symbols of disability rights, gay rights, feminism conservative values, um, regressive values of, you know, women uh, in the home and at work. But I think that a lot of the people who went into the sex toy industry were people who did want to change the world, who were people who were activists, and they saw the sex toy as a way, as a route to do that. And I think sex toys, since they're a tangible object, since they grab people's attention for, you know, people who wanted to spread the word about gay rights during the AIDS crisis or about gay sexuality and it not being a terrible thing like, you know, the pleasure chest people did. Um, I think that the sex toys can sometimes be a good vehicle for that. Right. It seems like in a lot of ways, your book is kind of a history of how sex toys have been marketed. Yeah. And it's really weird to see both how it differs, like depending on what the sex toy is and depending on what era we're in. So can you walk us through like a little bit of the differences and how stuff has been marketed for the past like couple hundred years and when things changed? Yeah, absolutely. So it's intimately tied to the laws in the United States, the anti-obscenity laws. So the first time we had sex toys marketed on any sort of wide scale was in the 1850s, um, right after rubber was vulcanized by Goodyear. That's when the sex toy industry kind of started being a real thing in the U.S. And it was kind of like the late 19th century, late 1800s, that we had Anthony Comstock, this censor, um, this vice crusader in New York, who was really upset about sex toys and contraceptives and all these things. 
So to get around a lot of these anti-obscenity laws, people would sell sex toys as health devices. So a good example of the late 1900s is the vibrator. Right after uh, electrification occurred in the early 1900s, we got the electric vibrator. And before that, vibrators were powered by water and steam and all sorts of other things and hand crank. And when the vibrator comes out in the early 1900s, um, it's sort of marketed as a medical tool. And they sold these electric vibrators everywhere. They were in New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and they were sold as not only as these health devices that cured everything from sciatica to, say, breast cancer and deafness and male impotence and uterine conditions and things like that. Um, They were also sold as household goods like blenders and mixers because they ran on the same motors. Yeah, what I really liked about your book is the sheer variety of ways in which vibrators were marketed. Like some even got the the good housekeeping seal of approval. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They sure did. And they were like Sears brand Kenmore vibrators. I mean, they were so symbolic of pure femininity and standard gender roles. It was really interesting. Do we have a lot of evidence that they were used uh, as advertised or um, were they used, you know, with off-label intentions? Well, so that's what's really interesting is we don't have evidence of how they're used. So we don't have people saying, hey, I masturbated with a vibrator in 1904. Like, dear grandkids, like, (laughs) please read this letter. I mean, people don't write down their masturbatory habits even today. So we have to kind of infer how they're used. Um, The earliest time that I've seen an ad that mentioned anything sexual related to a vibrator is in, I think it's like 1910, and it was called a sexual vibrator, really was, and it was this belt-like device. But for the most part, if you sold a device that was supposed to be put into your vagina or your rectum, I mean, that's sexual right there. There are um, physicians complaining about it and saying in the 1930s, saying, well, you know, you got to watch out if you've got uh, women using these vaginal vibrators. Uh, They may not want to, you know, have sex with their husbands anymore. So they knew what was going on, um, at least by the 30s. People had an idea. And one, one last thing about this, there are records of people using them in bathtubs. This is around 1910, 1915, and people misunderstood electricity, and some people got electrocuted and died uh, while using them in bathtubs because they were plug-in. Wow. It seems like a pretty straightforward reason for getting, I guess, discussions of sex more out in the open. Um, did researchers like Kinsey or his compatriots change the way that people talked about these devices at all? Kinsey, like, barely mentioned vibrators. So, no, not really. But Masters and Johnson did. In 1966, Masters and Johnson released their uh, human sexual response and They did talk about uh, vibrator-like devices and women's pleasure related to it. And that's when uh, Norman Mailer got mad about feminists using vibrators and stuff. So that sort of broke it open more. Right. Now we're in the 1960s and we've entered the era of the feminist. So it seems like from your book there was a pretty complicated relationship between women's liberation and all of these things. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So feminists, you know, we think of sex toys now, or at least I do, as being something most feminists are like, yay, you know, these are good things. They help 
women learn about sexuality. But it wasn't like that all the time. In fact, in the 1960s, Betty Dodson, um, a sex educator, artist, kind of brought the vibrator to the feminist movement, introduced it um, at her workshops. She would have these workshops where she would teach women how to masturbate. And um, this sort of revolutionized vibrators, brought them to the feminist movement. And it was really important because it was all about learning about your sexuality and becoming sexually independent so you wouldn't have to depend on men for orgasms or for financial stability. So she brought this idea from these workshops she was holding to the 1973 um, National Organization of Women uh, New York City Conference, gave a panel um, and presentation on vibrators. People were pretty receptive there, but then there began some backlash when her friend um, Del Williams opened the first sex toy store for women, which only sold vibrators, no dildos. And I've looked through the records and the letters to... Uh, her store, Eve's Garden, and people are like, what's a feminist doing selling vibrators? Why would you do this? These are capitalist commodities. They're unnatural. You know, they're made by corporations. We don't need this. Sex is natural. So that was one of the backlashes. The other was the dildo debates. And this is why Eve's Garden in the beginning didn't carry dildos. Because a portion of feminists thought the dildos were male-identified, were symbols of the patriarchy, and that you couldn't be a good feminist and use a dildo. So she didn't have dildos for a really long time. And then in um, Good Vibrations, which opened in 77 in um, San Francisco, they hid their dildos in the beginning because of these debates. That was pretty surprising to me, this, like, stark divide. But, I mean, eventually... Eventually, it seems like a lot of these businesses came around, but I was really surprised to learn, um, despite the fact that so much of advertising in the 60s and 70s was so sexual, this was like, you know, years into the run of magazines like Playboy or Penthouse, Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of magazines were refusing to run good vibrations ads for vibrators or even just that said good vibrations. Yeah. Yeah. That was what was kind of fascinating to me, too, was that... You would think, I mean, there was sex all over advertising. Sexy women used to sell everything except for sexual products. But vibrator ads were kind of blacklisted from the mainstream media and even from the feminist media. And that that's what was shocking. Penthouse, they would accept Good Vibrations ads, but then people who shopped at Good Vibrations said, oh, Penthouse is misogynist. How dare you advertise in Penthouse? It was like they couldn't win. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about what set Eve's Garden and Good Vibrations apart? Because nowadays it seems like pretty much every major metropolitan city has like at least a handful of women run or feminist or women centered, you know, adult entertainment stores. But this was really, really novel at the time. What made it different? So the first sort of feminist style sex toy shop was started by two gay men in New York City. Um, and this uh, that was the pleasure chest. And um, and it's important to mention that because before the pleasure chest and before Eve's Garden and Good Vibrations, sex toys were sold in um, these adult triple X stores 
which were basically porn stores, only 2 to 3% of the customers were women. And one of the main reasons for this, or a big reason, was they had um, masturbation booths in back. Um, there were these quarter machines and these little wooden boxes, and men would go there and masturbate and watch movies. Well, if that's going on in a store, women are not going to feel comfortable entering, to say the least. Um, and so stores were like that. They basically had pornography for men in there, and then they would have a few sex toys in the back of the store. And because of zoning regulations at the time, stores had to be like, you know, a thousand feet from a church, a thousand feet from a school. Um, There were all these regulations to get them out of the city, and so they'd be in these kind of seedy areas. So the Pleasure Chest in 1971 was the first to really put a sex toy store in a nice area. It was right next to a fancy... um, fancy Italian restaurant, and the first to sell sex toys as a boutique kind of item. Um, They started out as a waterbed store, but their store was so tiny they couldn't even fit a waterbed in there. They decided to sell something else. Um, But they were the first to not black out the windows. Um, So before this, all the stores blacked out the windows, couldn't tell what they were selling, and they had a few low-quality sex toys. So it starts out with Pleasure Chest doing that, and they had a lot of pro-women stuff in their catalogs. They first started out just as a gay store, but then they noticed a lot of women were, like, more comfortable shopping there. Um, And so they started getting a lot of female customers, and they became more popular with them. Then you get uh, Eve's Garden, which um, was a similar thing, except it was just for women. And it was so different because it was about female masturbation, whereas the other stores were really about male masturbation. Um, And in Eve's Garden didn't even let men in the store. And uh, Good Vibrations did let men in the store, but it was completely different than the male stores in that it was a boutique. It was really pretty, bright colors. Um, It does seem like, too, another difference between these stores and like the sex part, the sex toy Tupperware parties that you were involved in is that a lot of the focus seems to be on self-pleasure rather than entering into like these binary gender roles. Can you talk a bit about about your discoveries about how sex toys are used to like enforce gender norms? Yeah, yeah. So that was another thing about when I worked um, for passion parties in Texas. Um is that a lot of the sex toys we sold were either couples toys. So it was like, this is a toy that can enhance sex with, a lot of times we would say, with your husband. So it was enforcing this idea that sex was heterosexual. So lesbians weren't a target group for us. We were just assuming mostly that the customers were women, were in monogamous relationships, and were buying these toys not to masturbate and learn about their bodies on their own and learn how to please themselves, but to learn how to get pleasure within a sexual relationship with a man, especially during intercourse with a man, which is fine and good and and useful. But it was just trying to, you know, recreate this kind of heterosexual monogamous ideal where the man brings sexual pleasure to the woman as opposed to saying, hey, you learn how to do it on your own. Right. And that sort of like jives with the the weird incongruousness with how we talk about like male sexual pleasure versus female sexual pleasure. Because like, yeah, I didn't have cable growing up. So I just watched <laughs> network TV and I saw so many Viagra ads. And yet I've never seen anything equivalent 
for anything else. And those Viagra ads are pretty explicit, too. Yeah, so that that is such an important point you bring up because Viagra, um, Cialis, Levitra, these are um, erectile dysfunction ads that are ubiquitous. Viagra sponsored like NFL games, and they talk in detail about men's having erections lasting longer than four hours, and kids see these ads, and we're okay with that. And in fact. These erectile dysfunction drugs, they're covered by insurance. Men's impotence is given the scientific-sounding name of erectile dysfunction. It's considered a medical disorder. Yeah, you can get it from your doctor, uh, get a prescription easily and cheaply. Meanwhile, we try to run... Meanwhile, at the time that these are running, and the um, they started in 1998 and run through today, you would never see a vibrator ad. We first start to see some vibrator ads um, in 2010 when Trojan starts to advertise their vibrating Triforia and MTV, where they're trying to advertise it, which, you know, is full of sex. And I think the Jersey Shore was on at the time. MTV said this is too offensive. You know, you have to take out the word vibrator. Meanwhile, we have these erectile dysfunction ads everywhere. So male sexuality, we're much more comfortable talking about in American culture than we are female sexuality. You still will not see ads for vibrators. They're not covered by insurance. And in fact, in some ways, we were more open talking about vibrators in the early 1900s. At least at that time, mainstream media, there were vibrator ads everywhere. The history of the sex toy goes back, way back to the ancient Greeks, and probably even before. And it's been in continuous manufacture all over the world pretty much ever since. There's way more on this subject in Hallie Lieberman's book, Buzz, which might make the perfect stocking stuffer for the right person. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us on Smarty Pants. We'll be back in December with a slightly different format to take you through the holidays. A series of standalone conversations with someone who's got something interesting to say. Whether it's about growing up the son of a cartoonist, how maybe climate change caused Rome to fall, and what it means to be a plagiarist. Till then, have a lovely holiday, take care, and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.